ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chicky Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, it's Chicky Fitzgerald, and we are excited to have today with us Barbara Cave Henricks. And Barbara is the author, actually the co-author, of a book called Mastering the New Media Landscape, Embrace the Micromedia Mindset. And we have had the, the pleasure of uh, working with Barbara's team uh, actually for, for years now. Uh, she's a publicist as well as an author. And uh, so I am just delighted to introduce her. Barbara, I know you have a little bit of a challenge with your voice today. How are you feeling otherwise? I'm great, Chicky. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to come onto the show. We've very much enjoyed sending authors your way. Uh, over the past 10 years, and um, it's kind of interesting to be on the other side of the desk, so thank well, you. Well, it is, and you know, it's so funny how how this works out, because, uh, you know, your name has just been in front of me for so long that when uh, when I saw, in fact, I think your team must have just gone ahead and sent me a copy of your book, I thought, wow, she must have already been scheduled for the show, and you know, it's just so great to finally meet you. So Barbara, why don't you give our audience a little bit of a thumbnail about you uh, as the individual, and then how you uh, came to build uh, your company, which is Cave Henrik's uh, Communications, and uh, then we can dive into the book. Sure. I started my career as a journalist, actually. I worked in radio for about 10 years, and I was working at NBC Radio in Washington when I, I kind of got my fill of the news game. Um, the last big story I covered was the Lockerbie Scotland crash, and I spent weeks and weeks interviewing the parents of um, that flight was largely full of exchange students. Oh. And, you know, just kind of was growing a little disenchanted with news. And at the same time, NBC was owned by Westwood One, which owns Mutual Radio. So in our studios, we also had the Larry King Show emanating from there. And about once a week, we I would get tapped to run down and produce for Larry King. So that involved going through the hundreds and hundreds of books that came in every day. We got well over 100 every day. And I would wow. open those packages, and, you know, there were a good percentage, I'd say about 30% every day were books that Larry King would never do. They were children's books not authored by celebrities. They were cookbooks. They were young adult books. They were so off target. So when I decided I wanted to switch careers, I felt like it was a bit of a natural fit to to create better pitches than the ones we got. You know, they were – you know, it kind of created a lot more noise in the producing room when you got so many books that were just completely off point. So I spent six months sending my resume into New York. I got a job at Workman Publishing. Workman is a, a small but very innovative company. I worked on um, the New Basics Cookbook, the What to Expect Guides, very consumer-driven books. Um, loved that job and then flipped over to more serious nonfiction at Houghton Mifflin, and then I went to work for Goldberg McDuffie, um, that is a PR firm in New York, and I started and ran their business book division. That was in the late 90s, and about 40% of the books that were coming in were business books, and we really had no way to publicize them. They come to market very differently. So that was something that I started and led in 2006, that part of the company got big enough that I either needed to move back to New York 
um, and run it from there or stay in Austin and open my own shop. So I left very amicably and I took a couple of clients with me and that was almost 10 years ago. So that's what I do now. We have a small shop. We're seven people and we publicize nonfiction books, 75% of which are business titles. The rest are all nonfiction, current affairs, politics, health, biography, and memoir primarily. And you're an all-girl band, I know. We are an all-girl band. We are <laughs> I love strong, that. and we're an all-female-owned company. It is fun. You know, I think we're in the minority, and I know I always look twice at business books that come in from women because we are still very underrepresented in that category. Um, and I think that is changing, but it's changing slowly. So I'm proud to be part of the, the move to get more women with their name in the author slot. Well, I will tell you that your team, uh, you know, when you talk about that experience with Larry King and how you wanted to be more targeted, your team has been absolutely awesome in sending us very, very targeted authors. And, in fact, it's funny because I think you guys may have been one of the first uh, firms to send us male authors, right, because this show has traditionally, although we're in the process of shifting gears and and we're changing the name of of the show from the executive girlfriends group uh to the game changer network oh and i like that yeah because so many of our authors um really are changing the game in their field or in their their genre of whatever they're they're attacking and uh, so we started interviewing men uh, as, as well as women, and you know that that's a really good setup to where we're going next uh, with the show. So, so Barbara, tell us about what drove you. First of all, how did you meet your co-author? Uh, yes. Yeah, so and we met. then also, what what drove this book to come into creation? Sure. So um, I met. I'm sorry, Rust- Rusty. Yeah, Rusty and I met in 2007. He had just left um, a book PR firm here in Austin. As I said, I am in Austin, though I lived in New York for 10 years, and I telecommuted, actually, to my job there. Um, I met him, and he was primarily opening up a shop to do um, social media as well as provide websites and digital support for authors. I worked in what we would have called the traditional space, um, earned media hits. Um, By that time, though, we had extended our menu to include, of course, all the many online outlets that were beginning to pop up. So we partnered together on many projects, and what we came to to believe truly that not only that the the, sort of the definitions of the way we looked at the media project needed to be reworked. So everything to that point was typically thought of as traditional and social, and authors would come to us and say, I want to buy a package with traditional media and social media, as though they were sort of separate buckets. And as the world moved along and we got more and more digital, that structure almost began to feel outdated. So, you know, our idea was, first of all, we knit, you know, projects together so that one of, you know, each of those outlets was amplifying the other. So something someone did in traditional can be amplified by tweeting it out, by posting it live, by creating a video to go with it, to doing a slide share. Everything was basically starting to amplify each other. So instead of looking at social and dig- traditional and social media as two separate buckets, sort of a t- 2D world, we began to see it as three-dimensional. And the three dimensions are traditional or earned media, a center section that we call rented media, and then a third that we call owned. So this three-prong approach, we feel like that framework works better in the environment in which we now all exist. 
you know, we're really in a different age. It's a different media world. It calls for a different set of tools and, you know, different methods to use it more effectively. And, and so pulling your collective experience together uh, and, and developing this book was in response to probably telling the story you just told me dozens of times, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, again, you know, we're living in a new era. We call this sort of the age of micromedia. And what it means is that the traditional gatekeepers of media are not the only way to get a message out. So previously a campaign was run by basically appealing to the gatekeepers, to making your message heard, tailoring it, customizing it to traditional or earned media. That's still a valid strategy, but what's happening now is instead of just doing that, just honing that message, and we always used one piece of media coverage as leverage to get the next piece. That was the game. You get something in a newspaper, then you can take the newspaper to NPR, then you can take that NPR to the next outlet, and you kind of work the chain. But what right. now exists is this entire platform where people can get their messages out themselves. You can have a blog. You may have a website. Um, you may be using what we call rented channels like LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. You know, you don't just have to stand there and wait for gatekeepers to get excited about something. You can start amplifying your own message at the same time. So that's the real change is before people had to wait for access, now they have access on their own. And that's a very different environment. Right. So let's, let's jump right in to the definitions, and you gave us a little bit of it there as you were talking through each of those. So the, the new media landscape and this whole topic uh, that you talk about, micromedia, um, who did you actually write this book for? Let, let's back up to that before we, we dive into the content. We wrote the book for, well, our clients are primarily authors, but in talking with authors, we also have started to represent thought leaders. So it's really for anyone who wants to grow a personal audience, from authors to entrepreneurs to small companies to big brands. It's anyone who is interested in using all those tools and growing them. Primarily right now it seems to be entrepreneurs and authors who are drawn specifically to the advice. Right, right. Well, it's interesting because, you know, since I talk to so many authors and I'm an author myself, I've been talking to people about the roles of the publisher and the publicist and and, you know, so many authors talk about how so much of the work falls to them. And, you know, that's not so much a complaint about taking that on as it is, I think, not feeling equipped. So, you know, bravo for putting this together so that they will know how to, even if they're having someone else manage it on their behalf for a fee, or they're able to take components of it on themselves. And, and many entrepreneurs and thought leaders uh, do end up doing that. But it is so great to have, you know, essentially the, the Bible of this new media landscape. I mean, essentially what you say is true. So everyone is now sort of charged to be a layman journalist, whether we're posting a blog on LinkedIn or composing a tweet or using any one of these other platforms maybe, you know, being – asked to byline, we are creating our own content. So we have this huge community of layman journalists mm -hmm. who are expected to act and perform like real journalists, like people exactly. who are trained in this community. Um, and it's challenging. I mean, I think it's why we've seen in the first wave, there's, you know, right now I think we are all 
there's a deafening noise of how much information comes to us 24-7. And I think a lot of people get very cynical about it because a lot of it isn't good. You know, it wasn't constructed by people who are trained communicators. So I feel like we're at a point where there's a bit of a lag. We have tools where you can go on and communicate and use these platforms, but you really, no one, most by and large, have not been trained to be journalists. So there's a lot to be learned from people who have done this. So part of our thought is to have people start to think more like journalists and less like marketers. So when an author right. comes, we say, think about what they do. They educate, they entertain, and they inform. So think about those things before you think about making the sale or closing a deal. Well, and, and you talk also about how there are new rules of communication that have evolved out of the you know tremendous accessibility of technology to these laymen, and I actually love that term because that's precisely what we are. And, and I talk as an entrepreneur uh, quite often about how there are so many things that I do that I can do, but maybe mm -hmm. I shouldn't be doing. And again, it's not that I'm not capable but, again, I, I just don't always understand the nuances of not only the rules, but, as you said, how to think like the professional in that field as you're taking on that role. Yeah, so the ease and the speed of, of everything that happens online right now, I think, has kind of led to a situation where people are ignoring the rules of good communication and even good manners. Um, you know, it's so easy to plunge ahead and just – you know, start spraying content. People start out very enthusiastically. They want to spread their message. When you ask them who their audience is, they say everyone. And if we stop and really take that down, you know, a, a peg or two, your audience probably is not everyone, not even everyone in business. It might be people interested in leadership or people interested in customer service or, you know. So we urge people to do a couple things. One is to slow down a little bit and make sure that you are observing good communication good grammar, good spelling, you know, all of those rules. The other is do what journalists do, which is submit your work to another set of eyes. Don't go forth without someone else's opinion. There is an awful lot of platform building right now that's very me first. So a channel, you know, if you look at your own online contributions, if together those constitute your brand, you have to be careful that you are communicating in a way that not only talks about what you do, but gives people something of value. So me first platforming where you don't ever give anyone else's point of view can be a little flat. So right. you know, get a, sort of create an informal editorial board. Remember today that your first interaction with most people does happen online. Before I met Rusty that day, I had already gone and Googled him. I'd seen a photograph. I'd seen his picture. I knew he liked Longhorn football. I knew he had three kids. I knew where he went to school. This is, this is the environment we are. So, you know, brush up your communication skills, go on to Google, see what's being said about you, and contribute there in a way that's truly valuable. Right. Well, I think you're so on target with that because I know so many individuals who have never even Googled their own name. And, and are just aghast when they see what comes up. And I, I've got a friend, uh, and she's got a, a rather unique name, but there's, there's like a stripper yep. out there who's blogging, <laughs> you know, kind of porn stuff and using, uh, obviously, her own name, which is the same as, as my friend, who is a very well-respected technologist. And, you know, and, and she never even thought about the fact that if she would simply post more often – 
uh, and in you know a variety of channels, not just a single channel, which I, I know we're going to be talking about the the multiple channel approach. Um, that she can actually, she won't make that other content disappear, but it will, you know, it will be pushed down uh, simply because of her frequency and her selection of of channels. So can can we just kind of jump to talking about that because there there isn't just one way to communicate, and you you have bucketed it as the earned, rented, and owned, and how those are all better together. Um, but is there a hierarchy for what ends up getting ranked better in Google? And I, I know that's a moving target. But you know, the SEO question that. is one that we don't particularly specialize, neither Rusty nor I. But I will tell people that if they can do one thing after they listen to this is to take heed from that story you just told and go out and reserve the URL for your name. And if your name is already taken, if you have a common name, um, think about the closest combination. So Rusty on some platforms is actually Rusty R. Shelton. And another Rusty Shelton is not only taking his name, but is also a social media expert. So this happens all the time. Yes, um, yes, Dr. Does. Julie Silver at Harvard Medical School, where Rusty has presented, happens to have the same name as an adult entertainer and was aghast. So when she claimed her social media accounts and set up her URL, she had to go by Dr. Julie Silver as opposed to just Julie Silver. Ram Sharan, who we've worked with, you know, who is a global media, con you know, global business right, consultant, right. is the same name as an Indian actor, like a Bollywood star who's in his 30s, mm. and he owned page one. So first of all, buy the URL for your name. If you can't get it, take a clue from someone like David Meerman Scott. David Scott, he was a social media person 20 years ago, and he said, you know, I can't own David Scott. It's too too generic. So right. he inserted his full middle name and branded everything. So I would urge people to do that. With SEO, it does count how much you are contributing. So yes, you can definitely push up in your ranks as long as you're not competing with someone who has an audience basically and a participation rate that's identical to yours. Then right. you really have to do something to carve out your brand. Add a middle initial add something on the end, mm -hmm. try to get something really close, and reserve it across every channel you can. We've gone well, so I'm far as to buy to our I'm grateful to my mother name. for giving me the name Chicky because <laughs> I don't usually have to compete with You don't with have anyone. any problem. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that is something to be, to be conscious of is know what's out there. I mean, a lot of people don't even want to do it. They're like, oh, I'm afraid to know what's being said about me or what people see. And I say, you know, you really need to know. You can't position against or – in any way correct what's out there without knowing what's out there first. Right, so yeah, let's right. talk a little bit about three buckets. So if we talk about owned, rented, and earned media, owned media is pretty simple. It's any piece of media or real estate that you fully control. That's a website if you have one. It's your blog if that's posted under your name. And that is also like an email newsletter list that you've gathered and compiled on your own. You are autonomous over all of that space. Rented media is composed largely of social media channels. So we're talking about what people refer to as my Facebook account, my Twitter handle, my LinkedIn presence. Those are important, but those are you posting content, and you do control a large part of it. You control your photo. You control, control what you say, but you're posting it on a platform that someone else owns and controls. In 2013, Facebook gave brands a big wake-up call when they changed the algorithm, and essentially they limited access to all the fans that large 
brands had managed to collect. So they had collected audiences of millions of people, and Facebook all of a sudden said, nope, you're going to have to buy advertising to have access to them. So you have to be aware that those can close down. Earned media is what we would have thought of as traditional. So earned media is any place where you are invited on a stage, as you invited me onto your show today, and I had to basically appeal to you to get in front of your audience. So those are the three spaces that we're working in. And owned is sort of a relatively new concept, but it's a very important one because while I may have 1,500 you know, people that I'm connected to on LinkedIn, if I don't have a way to connect with those people, if LinkedIn closes the doors tomorrow, I'm going to be losing out on a lot of what I created. So right. in the book, we talk a lot about ways to use your exposure in rented space and when you're on earned space to get people to travel over to your own auditorium and join your own list. So we do that with quizzes. We do it with interaction. And you can do it just by flat out being valuable. You know, Seth Godin really made a name for himself as a marketer by posting frequently, posting very valuable, useful information. So he drove... Well, and, and, and I want to make a point audience. about him because one of the things that he does better than anyone I know is he posts short, meaningful posts. Very and, short. You know, more than, you know, the, the 144 characters, but his blogs... Uh, are rarely more than a few paragraphs long, but they get repeated and not just passed on. I mean, I have told stories to people in conversation from his blogs because I can remember them, not mm-hmm. verbatim, but you know, pretty close. I think we all, when we go to blog, and I'm guilty of it as much as anyone else, is that we feel like we need to say enough. You know, we need to make it 600 words. And I think he's a very good case of, you know, he, he posts very frequently, but his idea is typically one idea expressed very succinctly using typically just one story. And they're very sticky. I mean, they remember we are all, are all inundated with so much information. I feel his content really does stand, stand out. And so in your book, you also uh, pay a, a good amount of attention to discoverability. And, you know, we've, we've talked generically about Googling yourself, but, but it is still more than just Google. It definitely is more than Google. And what we know today about being, what we call being discoverable is basically a way to get yourself noticed by journalists or by gatekeepers. So most of today's journalists absolutely use search engines and social media tools as they put together their stories. So 89, you know, a recent study showed 89% of journalists say they go to blogs if they're looking for an expert. 65% of them use social media networking sites like LinkedIn, and about 52% are on Twitter. So they are out there hunting for people who are experts. So what we say is if you want to join the conversation, there are a couple things you can do to make it easier to find you. One is we've already discussed is owning your URL. So if you own your URL, um, you completely control that, and you can control all the keywords that are on there so that when someone is searching for an expert about terrorism and ISIS, those three words embedded in your profile will increase the chances you come up. Another thing you can do is update all of your social media bios. I am always stunned when we have authors come in and they've authored a new book, and maybe they're talking about um, – Let's see, StrengthsFinder 2.0. They're talking about how to discover your strengths. That's one of the first titles that Cave Henricks represented. So 
and when I looked at Tom Ruff's bio, he wasn't saying in his LinkedIn profile or on his Twitter account or anywhere in his social media bios, he wasn't saying specifically what he was working on. So I urge people to, once every couple of weeks, just review that bio and see if it reflects currently what you're doing, your expertise, particularly if it's timely. And third, you know, that it really does reflect what's going on with you today. That's something you can easily switch. You can update those every day if you want. So I think that's an important thing to do. Um, the last thing I think everybody could do is ditch the contact form on their websites. I'm, I know people squirm when I say it, but a journalist who's on deadline is not going to fill out a contact form. They're going to simply move on to the next person who's available. So what we've done for clients is set up set up a new email address specifically for that feed on their website or at the bottom of their blog or wherever they're, they're channeling responses to an email account that someone will check every day. That right. really boosts your chances. I mean, they, you know, given the time constraints of most journalists, unless they specifically need you, they're going to move on to an expert that makes it a lot easier to get in touch with them. So right, and I, you know, I've taken that one do. step further on my own sites where I do want people to be able to contact me, and, I, and I'm really amazed at how many companies and individuals make it nearly impossible, even on LinkedIn, uh, to get to them. And, you know, LinkedIn contributes to that because they don't make it easy uh, to contact someone that you don't know. Um, but but I have uh, adopted a calendaring product where I can give people uh, the ability to block a 15-minute call with me. And so I'm not giving them my number, but it, it's placing it on my calendar, and I can accept it or reject it. And and that you know that for me has worked really well. That's amazingly proactive. I don't think I've ever known anyone who's done that. I mean, we killed it on our website. Um, for the company, you know, it was here, fill out this form if you're interested. And I think actually the number of incoming requests um, went up. And, you know, just as a personal experiment, when I was writing this book, I took some time outside of the office. But because our business is often based on media and urgency, I took off my, I, I, I started putting my cell phone number on all of my emails. I just thought, you know, it'll be interesting to see how many people actually do call um, and I really only got calls when things were truly urgent. I right. did get calls from the media. When I got a client call, it was something that actually needed to be tended to. So I felt like people really did not abuse the access. I know everyone has a different barometer. That's why I said if you want to set up a separate account, um, you know, and there are some safety concerns and, and other things where people, you know, maybe don't want to list that number. But the easier you do make it, the more likely it is that you will get, you know, some sort of coverage. I, I right. love the idea of just giving them 15 minutes and then you have a chance to vet the profile or take a look yourself at right. who wants to and speak And I've to. got another tool right. that I use that's very similar where they can either select the free, because I, I'm also a consultant, so they can book, uh, they can actually book a one-hour consultation for a fee with me. And those tools um, are really, well, they're, they're both free and very affordable. I mean, the, the ones that deeply integrated in with your calendaring uh, environment. So I highly recommend that. Um, I want to move on and talk a little bit more about the online brand audit. And I want to back up to the whole concept of a personal 
brand. And whether you are an expert in a particular field, even if you are corporately employed, right, and want to be known as, you know, the person who is is expert on that field, or, you know, you're an author, you know, just trying to get a platform out there and you don't have today the benefits of a publicist like Cave Henricks, um, how do you go about getting uh, that brand audit done? Or, you know, do you give them the the steps to do that in your book? We do walk someone through a brand audit. And I think, you know, you're exactly right, Chicky, that this day and age, personal brand is is something that people have whether they want it or not. You know, I find that kind of interesting. So when an author comes to us with a request, you know, I will look often at a company bio, then perhaps they have their own bio. Collectively, sort of everything that you see online um, constitutes your personal brand. So when you do a brand audit, you do one step we've already talked about, which is Google your name. See what comes up. See if your name comes up on page one of a Google search. Um, and then go, go through and very carefully click everything that's out there about you. Um, I think people you know, there is a little fear of, oh my gosh, I don't even want to know. But we urge people to really take a look and see if there's a lot of stuff posted online that maybe is old and outdated and maybe on a channel that you can control. So look at every piece of video. Look at every radio interview. Look at everything that's available online. Change and update the ones that you have control over. The ones that you don't have control over, I urge people to set aside an hour or two to call companies that are posting information that's old, outdated, inaccurate, and see how much of it they can fix. So you can proactively ask people to do it. The next thing you need to look at is your social media. This is where I think entrepreneurs, executives, anyone with a personal brand, authors who write books but have a day job as well, this is the space where they get very overwhelmed. So what we see often is someone comes in and says, well, you know, I need to be more active in social media. So last weekend I sat down and I created a LinkedIn profile and I you know, created a Twitter handle and I went on and created a Facebook page and I started an Instagram and you know, they do all these accounts and then they're very quickly overwhelmed. It's too many channels to keep track of. They're right. spreading themselves way too thin. So what I say is go on and look at everything you've got in place decide which ones first best suit your audience. So largely for the people that we work with, it's LinkedIn and Twitter. Those are the two social media accounts where we see the best traction for business leaders. So what I'll say is let's close down that Facebook page because Facebook is largely where people interact with brands they already know. So decide which channels you can actually consistently contribute to and shut down the rest because the Internet is sort of littered with abandoned accounts. And then start planning your work in a way that you, you set aside 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever your chunk of time is, and put it down as a regular appointment on your calendar and make it a point to contribute to the places where you are visible. Nothing looks worse to a journalist than a blog that was last updated in 2013 or a Twitter account that there were 10 tweets on and was abandoned three or four years ago, and then someone gung-ho gets a book out, gets a project started, and wants to go from zero to 1,000 overnight. That kind of growth is difficult, and it's very difficult to start contributing over five or six channels all at once and keep them current and learn the language and the style and the tone that's appropriate for each one. So when you audit what you're doing, don't just look at raw numbers of how many followers you have and how many fans. 
look instead at how accurately that represents feeds that your ideal customer would read. That's where I start with a brand audit. And people can very much do that themselves. Right. And really, you need to also take a look at the tools. And I know there are, there are many that, that you can use. I happen to use Buffer app, which uh, allows you to actually put uh, an icon right on your browser. And if you find an article or a page that you want to share, you just click on that, and you can actually publish it out to multiple channels. So it, I, I used to have people you know, see me at a conference, and they'll say, wow, you are everywhere on social media. How do you do it? And you know, I'd think, well, you know, it really isn't that hard because I do have all of those accounts, but I'm publishing information in, in a single entry out to all of those. Yeah, and, and, and I always do that. And you, that particular tool allows you to tailor to what you want to say on Facebook, you know, where you have more room than on some of the other channels. Where yes, you and we use things. Hootsuite. I personally use Hootsuite. Um, there are also, you know, the channels themselves are starting to create bridges. LinkedIn now has the Pulse program. So you right. can hook LinkedIn to your blog, and when you publish a blog, it cross-posts to your LinkedIn. That's the other thing I would tell people in this arena is content in this day and age of what we're calling micromedia, um, content is gold. It's the engine behind the information economy. So if you are a content creator, you're in a very good position. Media that used to come to us and say, we'd love to review the book. We'd love to feature the book. We'll write a brief review. We'll do a Q&A. Often what they now say is, we'd love to have 750 words from your author. So what I tell people is, yes, we are. You pointed to this earlier in the interview. You know, The onus is on the author to create content. But when you do create it, make sure you're using it as widely as you possibly can so that all that effort isn't wasted. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, taking a look at once you have gotten your own media infrastructure in shape, and again, I, I think so many people do, did exactly what you talked about, is they went out and tried to do everything all at once. And, and they really didn't look at, at how it all hangs together. And, you know, I think specifically about my own blog. And I started out on a, a Google uh, blogger account and then later – uh, you know, tried to migrate that into my WordPress website. And, you know, sometimes you you do need help, and you do need a professional who can help you with those platforms and help you understand, um, you know, how to use certain fields such as the tags. Um, for instance, in my blog, I always include a tag with my Twitter handle and, and with the author's Twitter handle when we're posting about a show. And, and that allows it to be picked up uh, in the search uh, process. But if you don't have all of that expertise, you know, finding somebody who can actually help you is, is really the way to go. I think so. And I think in this environment, you know, when we take a project, whether it's, you know, working with the School of Management at Kellogg or an author with a book coming out or a large company like Gallup or Deloitte, 75% of our time is devoted to earned media to getting that traditional earned coverage. Because while it's sort of like Mark Twain said, the reports of its death are vastly exaggerated, <laughs> people keep saying it's dead, but everyone who comes in the door wants it. So I would purport that it isn't dead um, and that you know economic law 
would dictate that it's actually probably more value because it's a little more scarce. So we, de we dedicate about 75% of our time to that, but we spend 25% of the time training up authors and other clients to be content providers, to participate right. in the social media space with a little more confidence. I also think when people understand why they're doing it, they're much more involved with doing it well. If you tell someone just, you know, create a Twitter handle and start tweeting, that's very vague advice, you know, <laughs> exactly. and it's very easy to get overwhelmed. I mean, you know, there's sort of a language and a, so, you know, we always try to start them out with the Twitter handle and following 25 journalists in their area and maybe some people in their professional area and then sitting back to listen, just watching streams for a couple of weeks, get a sense of how it works before you jump in and try to do something. I really think authors, the resistance level goes down when they understand how it all kind of gels together, why it makes sense for them to devote 20 minutes twice a day to paying attention to it. Yeah, that makes it. so much sense, Barbara. So talk to us a little bit about blogs, bylines, and killer content. What is killer content? Killer content is back to that, how do I create content um, that is like what a journalist would create? How do I make sure that this is really good content? So, you know, let's go backwards. What we did was talk to a lot of journalists. You know, what do you do? What what advice would you give someone starting out? So the first, you know, I think there's a couple of couple of good rules. One is create content that's very timely and very compelling. This is tough. This is timely, you know, involves Yes, you want to have some posts that are sort of subjects always discussed in your field, but be aware of what's going on in your area of expertise. If I'm a communications professional and there's been a huge gaffe in PR, um, I might want to write about that if I want to be discovered. So make sure your, your content is very compelling, very timely. I mentioned this before, submit your work to another set of eyes. We here at the company are each other's sort of editorial boards. So before anybody blogs, or even we do it for clients, we debate the merits of the content before we take to the stage with it. Getting onto the public stage in this day and age is very, very easy, and too many people rush in quickly without you know, another eye to say, well, wait, I'm not sure I understand that, or are you sure that's really someplace? Um, I say newsjack carefully and respectfully. Newsjacking is something that um, David Meerman Scott, who I referred to, he kind of coined that term. It means, you know, join a, a story that's already underway. I think it's a valid way to get attention, but I think you have to do it very carefully. Tragedy is taboo. Never try to jump into a situation that is a tragedy. Two, when you look at a situation and say, hey, I really have some way to add to that story, ask yourself the question, how do I move the conversation forward? How does right. what I have to say take this topic or take this subject and move it into either a different direction or advance the thinking. I think if you set that bar for yourself, it's a lot easier. Well, um, I've wondered about that, Barbara, uh, because a lot of times what I will do, and, and I have in the back of my mind, it is for that discovery purpose, is I will actually go into someone else's story, and if, they, if the platform allows comments, and some, you know, some of the major outlets don't, but but many newspapers and and particularly my own industries, trade journals, um, they they do allow comment, and so I will comment on the story from within their story using the comment feature. What do you think about that? I actually think that's a great idea because 
first it means that you're not just stepping out and trying to stake your, you know, put another flag in the ground under a subject where there's already 50 flags around you. You're going directly in. Secondly, I think if you're echoing what they say, you still want to follow that rule of bringing the content one step further. So you might say, hey, that was a terrific post. I love what you had to say about X. I think that's true, and so is Y. What I think that does for you is first it might engage you in conversation with that person. It certainly is going to engage that you with pe other people who are commenting. And third, if a journalist is reading it and thinks to themselves, oh, I need someone else like that, or if you oppose the piece, I need someone else with the same experience who thinks differently, a journalist will read down and look at the comments. So I actually think that's a pretty thoughtful way to jump into a conversation that's ongoing. Sometimes the noise is so loud, we just urge people to step back. We're right. working on a book that's about data, every data, how data comes into every, everyday life. And the lottery story started to erupt a month or so ago. And those authors were very eager to get in and talk about odds. And I said, you know what? It's like shouting into a screaming wind. You know, there's way too many people talking about this. Why don't we wait until Monday and have you post something that takes into account the results? You know, you can frame your story that uses it, but let's not go into the eye of the storm. Let's wait right. until we move after. So I think timing comes into play as well. And I think the final hint I would give to people about journalists is don't rely on frequency over substance. This is something that I think a lot of people chant, you know, participate, participate. Yes, we urge you to participate, but not at the expense of writing something that's good. Because one flimsy post, one, one thing that isn't that compelling, and the audience simply moves on. So you want to be, you know, valuable to any audience that you manage to congregate in your space, whether that's on your blog, whether it's people who've signed in or opted into an email list. Wait until you have something substantive to say. Um, right. Just getting something once a week, you know, people begin to glaze over. If you do it, you know, when you really feel compelled or when you feel the content warrants it is a much better guide. Right. So let's let's shift gears and, and talk back about the earned media because you know I've I've always been a huge proponent of PR and and even over many other kinds of marketing spending, uh, particularly for entrepreneurial uh, companies who are trying to break through the noise and you know perhaps bring something truly new uh, to the equation. But you know I know it is just so hard to get that that one story right whether you know and it used to be uh that you know getting in the wall street journal or getting in the new york times you know i mean that was like the ultimate and and is that still the case and and why is it that this traditional earned media still really packs a punch as a part of a comprehensive strategy yeah so i think that there's been a myth that's been around for certainly as long as i've done this more than 20 years um, of a silver bullet. If I get on the Oprah show, if I am featured on the front page of the Marketplace section of the Wall Street Journal, I will then no longer have to do anything. And in truth, that never really was true. There really isn't a silver bullet. Um, we've had many people over the years on Oprah, um, not many because business books aren't tailored to that, but I've had four, I would say, over the, you know, when the, wow. the show was still live. And in a couple of cases, yes, it was a huge, enormous sales boost. In those cases, though, the book was extremely relevant to the people who watched the Oprah show. So a book like The Millionaire Woman Next Door, 
you know, for that we got the author. We also find, found several, you know, featured several of the women who had become self-made millionaires. A story like that, yes, that will have traction with the media outlet, but it is very rare and almost non-existent that one hit will catapult you to the top and keep you there. What it does give you and what I do think is even more valuable is it gives you a credibility boost. So we talked about all these ways in which you can participate because you don't have to go through a gatekeeper. That also means that what you post there, people take you know, with a bit of a grain of salt. Something like having the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Fortune Magazine or CNBC or the Today Show means that your message was credible, it was relevant, and once you have that, the, the boost to your credibility just soars through the roof. So right. then what happens is the ability to book you on additional media grows by tenfold. So someone who's been featured, you know, we've had clients, right now we've had a spate of clients who've written op-eds, either for the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. That single op-ed can then translate into at least half a dozen other very solid, large national media hits. So a feature in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal means NPR will be interested, means Morning Joe might be interested. You know, one piece leverages against the other. Um, and the gatekeepers, I think when you're pitching the gatekeepers, the problem is noise. You know, most of the people we talk to do get over 100 books a day. The woman who used to get take all the incoming pitches for books at CNBC for the entire network said she would come in every morning to over 1,000 emails. And I said, what do you do? What do, how do you? <laughs> and she said, you know impossible. what? She said, what I often do, I'll just mass delete it all. She said, you know what? Sometimes if I have time, I might you know, slide through and look, look at, you know, the subject line or look for a publicist who's brought me something good in the past and I right. might take those out, but some days it's flat out overwhelming and I just mass delete it. Of course, this is like a stake to our heart, right? You know, because we, you know, are very careful, very customized. Don't pitch a journalist you don't know. You should know not only what they write about, but what their last five pieces were. What were they saying? Does the content that you're bringing fit into things they already cover. You know, that customized pitch is magic, but the truth is those gatekeepers are overwhelmed. So getting on is still a, a great big deal. Wow. Well, that, that I mean, I think about that, uh, how overwhelmed I am just with a couple of hundred e emails a day, which, you know, again, it's, it's impossible to process. Every time I say I'm going to get on top of it, uh, you know, I'm a few days later I find I'm buried again. Um, but, you know, it, it kind of brings back a point from the earlier chapter where you're talking about killer content. And one of the things that you talk about are, uh, you know, the the actual um, the, the title of the blog. And one of the things I love about, um, you know, some of the, the best bloggers is that they have such uh, amazing abilities to write a title for their blog that just sucks you right in. Right, yeah. so writing a title for an email to break through that clutter, I, I would think, is equally important. You know, we do a lot of experimenting with it. You know, which subject lines cause people to open the email, and I know there's you know vast mountains of research on it. Um, and I think we all kind of wish we were headline writers. I think there are some people that just really have a knack for being able to put that title on that gets the magic key open. I think the bottom, though, underlying thing about all of that is don't rush. You know, as I say, it's always impossible to pull that email back. Now, with the case of the woman who deletes in mass by a 1,000, her advice to us was 
don't assume that I didn't want it. If you know that it's something that I would give at least consideration, email right. me again, come back. Um, you know, she said, I'll even give you my private email. Don't abuse it. So when you do get access, when you, you know, when an author or anyone who's an entrepreneur does have access with the press, you know, we have some guidelines on what to do then. The first rule is don't abuse your access. The second is always try to be valuable to them. Um, the third is talk about what they want to talk about. So if they come to you with a story on something, even if it's not within the subject area that you're promoting that day, try to be valuable to them. Um, and then be accessible. Be willing to connect them with others. You know, be helpful. Being helpful and valuable is a good way to get into the media's Rolodex. Probably almost as important as having that killer headline. Right. I've been in too many book titling me meetings to think that I have any magic clue on that. All I know is it's very easy to say, that's a terrible title for a book. And then when someone turns to you and says, well, what would be better? Somehow the mind always goes blank. I mean, it's, it's a skill. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing. So uh, as we come to, to a bit of a close here, you've got a couple of other chapters that I want to talk about. And, and one is the chapter called Take the Stage. And this is about launching a speaking career. And I have to tell you, one of the things, uh, you know, as I have just written my last book, which is a, an unusual genre, and I've been told, uh, you know, that it, that it doesn't fit well in, into what um, – you know, is, is normally written in the business category. But the thing that holds me back in some ways from actually going and getting it published, which I, I know I will at some point, but is this whole idea of launching a speaking career. And so many of the authors that I've interviewed, you know, both from, from your firm and others, um, they – they are authors and speakers, and that's what they do for a living. Well, I'm a technologist that happens to have a radio show, right? And, and I'm a technologist at heart. And I think, you know, having to get out there and actually go on the speaker circuit is not my end game. So what do you tell, and, and let's talk specifically about authors first, and then let's talk about the benefit of having a speaking career if you are a thought leader, uh, as an example, maybe who hasn't written a book yet. Well, I think, you know, it's a great question. So we do work with a number of authors who are professional speakers, meaning they pack their bag for anywhere from 60 to, you know, 150 engagements a year. That's a commitment. You know, that's a lifestyle. That means you're on the road most of the time, and it means you're not really selling consulting services. You're just doing standalone talks. That is actually fairly rare. So, yes, we've worked with a few of those people. More of the people we work with are consultants who might do some speaking, aren't sure about speaking, think that they need to do it when a book comes out, but they want to test the waters. So our approach to this is that we will ask and you know, sort of get a barometer of someone's interest. If they say, you know what, I wouldn't mind doing three or four when the book came out. This was the case for me with this book. Um, I do not want to pack my bag to go on the road 60 to 60. Right, yeah, I mean, that to me is, is I think I'd rather have a root canal. <laughs> yes, I definitely would rather have a root canal than get on the road. So what we do with them is we say, if someone comes to us, they're promoting a book, they're not a speaker professionally, but they are willing to give a presentation, as we will book three or four engagements during the course of the book launch to prepare them if they would choose to do that at somewhere down the road. So typically we try to ensure – so there are places that host. Microsoft does book and author talks. Google does them. There's an agency on the East Coast in Washington called Hooks Books that sets up events with many governmental 
agencies that are there. There's the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. So we, we try to book a couple of those for authors who have some interest. We make sure that that's videotaped and we put together a speaker's kit. So what we do then is sit down with them and say, okay, you can obviously give one talk about mastering the new media landscape, but can you give another talk? And what would the subject be? So right. we create sort of another set of materials for them that says, this is a leadership author's author. They can speak about these four subjects, okay? So it's different than a book pre press kit. It's positioning them as a speaker. And we will engage several speeches to see if they like it. What I'm always surprised at is some of some people say, well, yeah, I'd be interested if the people come knocking at my door. I don't want to engage a bureau. I don't want to open the floodgates <laughs> to be in, you know, to have to do 100 a year. Right. But they don't really ever represent that on their website. They don't say, you know, speaking. Oh, by the way, Chicky is available to speak at your event. Right. Here right. Are the four and and actually, I, I joke about this. I, I actually do love public speaking. I just, I've got kids who are in high school, and I just don't want to miss this time. I, I missed so much when they were younger, and I was traveling so much as a consultant. And, uh, you know, so I, I'm just making that choice right now for me. But I do know that speaking does give great exposure, and, you know, I don't want to underestimate that. But I would also say, Barbara, that uh, doing a radio show is a great alternative because I have a platform every week for an hour with amazing authors and experts and by the way that radio show when it is syndicated out over all of the places that we publish it on gives me great return on a Google search so if you like to talk about a particular topic it is so easy to do a radio show. Now, not everyone can do it well, and not everyone is a good interviewer, but but uh, I will tell you that it has been one of the best things that I did. I started it eight years ago, and I think I've done over 400 interviews, and it is the, one of the highlights of my week. You know what, and I think that that points to something really important. So, yes, speaking for some people, you know, is what they want to do and, and a way to physically reach an audience. But the way you're participating with audio programming is another way. So, you know, not only are there radio shows, now podcasts are having a very big surge of popularity. When we start talking to clients about creating content, we have one, one or two who are like, you know what, writing a blog, I just can't do it. It's just not me. I don't like to do it. But it turned out a couple of those people were professional speakers. And so, you know, what about a video blog? You're very comfortable in front of an audience. You really enjoy the experience of speaking. Set up a video camera. Do it that way. Right. So what we try to do is we tell people, like, you making that choice. And I'm similar. I have three children as well. Only one left at home. But, it's you know, I'm not going anywhere while I still have one at home. So I can participate some way that is virtual and that suits my needs. You know, we're I, I tend to believe that the next wave in sort of the, all this online space and all these micromedia outlets and all this vast content the next wave of it is going to be more visual, more daring, yes. more, more. So, you know, maybe you like video and you're on Twitter, so you should try Periscope, which allows you to stream video. Maybe you don't like to write a blog. Maybe you'd rather do a podcast. Maybe you're great on the radio and you have context to bring. You know, think about all the ways you contribute that are beyond just sitting down and putting pen to paper because there are other ways. Right, um, right. And I think it's kind of an exciting time, and we're kind of at the birth of all of this. You know, we're underway. It's morphing in front of us. And I think the people who will do the best are the people who kind of take advantage of the newness, that aren't afraid to experiment and try. 
Um, I think there's a lot to be said for giving giving different formats a, a whirl. Oh, I totally agree. And and your last chapter of the book, and we're we're just right up at the top of the hour, so we need to wind down. But you talk about future proofing your media strategy, and and this book it just has so many practical aspects. I, I just really encourage our listeners uh, to go out and grab a copy of the book. Uh, before I close the show, Barbara, would you give folks a, a way to get in touch with you? What's the best way uh, to connect to you and, and to Rusty if, if they're interested in having you come speak to their group? Yeah, absolutely. So we did set up a page for the book, MasteringTheNewMediaLandscape.com. Um, that'll give you a lot of information about the book. And from there, you can also just click on RustyShelton.com and on my URL, which is CaveHenricks.com, for direct access to us. On Twitter, I'm at Barbara Henricks. He is at Rusty Shelton. And we'd love to hear from anybody um, who's listening today. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, that's fabulous, Barbara. And again, we've been talking to Barbara Cave Henricks, and the name of the book is Mastering the New Media Landscape, Embrace the Micromedia Mindset. And if you have a personal brand, if you're an author, uh, if you're a thought leader, you need to get a copy of this book because it gives you all of the practical tools to get your message out there and to make sure that you are getting noticed in the right way. Barbara, thanks so much, and I look forward to uh, future interviews with uh, all of your other authors. Absolutely. It was so great. I really enjoyed our conversation, and we will be in contact with you about other All right. Thank you so much, Barbara. And thank you for joining our show. This is the Game Changer Network, and go out and change your game today. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. social media and marketing and our guest will be Barbara Cave Hendricks.